Welcome to episode 12 of the second season of Undisclosed. Three great sponsors for you this week. First up, we've got longtime sponsor, Stamps.com. We're also supported this week by Casper Mattresses, our most comfortable sponsor. Thank you, Casper. And lastly, but not leastly, ABC's debuting drama, Conviction. It starts tonight at 10 Eastern, 9 Central, only on ABC. Check it out. Listen in for the spots later in the show and make sure to support our sponsors because they support us. Until then, enjoy the show. Welcome to the 12th episode of Undisclosed. Today's episode is Exit Wounds. This is Colin Miller. I'm an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I blog at Evidence Prof Blog. I'm joined, as always, by Susan Simpson. Susan is an associate at the Volkov Law Group, and she blogs at The View from LL2. Now, unfortunately, Rabia couldn't join us today, but she'll be back next week. In the last couple of episodes, we've discussed how at trial, the state made a concerted effort to piece together the various pieces of Joey Watkins' character in order to establish a motive for killing Isaac Dawkins. Today, we'll also discuss a concerted effort by the state to put together various pieces of evidence, but in this case, we're dealing with literal pieces. The fragments of bullet found in and around Isaac Dawkins' truck, which the state tried to piece together to establish he was killed with a 9mm bullet. Stanley Kubrick based his 1987 movie Full Metal Jacket on Gustav Hasford's novel The Short Timers. Kubrick changed the title to Full Metal Jacket in part because this was the type of ammunition, a hard-cased bullet with soft material on the inside that was used by soldiers during the Vietnam War. But the title is also metaphorical. The military takes the view that you must break someone down before you can build them back up. But this assumes that as in the myth of Prometheus, man is composed of clay. But man is predominantly made of water, and water seeks its own level. In the opening Paris Island section of the film, Arlie Ermey's gunnery sergeant tears down Vincent D'Onofrio's private pile under the belief that he can build him back up into something resembling a full metal jacket, soft on the inside but hard on the outside. But sometimes the pieces don't fit together, no matter how hard you try. In the prosecution of Joy Watkins, the prosecution similarly had several pieces that didn't quite fit together. Snitches who kept changing their story, the little blue Honda Accord, alibi witnesses, and fragments of a bullet found in three separate locations. But these misaligned parts didn't stop them from trying to jam square pegs into round holes. And in some of these instances, they had an accomplice, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. Last week, the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, or PCAST, issued a landmark paper on forensic sciences. I'm going to declare it mandatory reading for all undisclosed listeners. It's that important. But this section in particular I wanted to highlight. The report found that many forensic feature comparison disciplines are based on the premise that various sets of features, for example, fingerprints, tool marks on bullets, human dentition, and so on, are unique. Yet, uniqueness studies miss the fundamental point. The issue is not whether objects or features differ. They surely do, if one looks at a fine enough level. The issue is how well, and under what circumstances, examiners applying a given metrological method can reliably detect relevant differences in features to reliably identify whether they share a common source. Uniqueness studies, which focus on the properties of features themselves, can therefore never establish whether a particular method for measuring and comparing features is foundationally valid. Only empirical studies can do so. 
for a metrological study to be scientifically valid and reliable, the procedures that comprise it must be shown, based on empirical studies, to be repeatable, reproducible, and accurate at levels that have been measured and are appropriate to the intended application. Now, the PCAST report looked at various types of comparison studies, but with regard to firearm comparisons in particular, the report found that the field does not currently have an empirical basis. It notes, We observed that the association of firearm and toolmark examiners' theory of identification as it relates to toolmarks, which defines the criteria for making identification, is circular. The theory states that an examiner may conclude that two items have a common origin if their marks are in sufficient agreement where sufficient agreement is defined as the examiner being convinced the items are extremely unlikely to have different origin. In addition, the theory explicitly states that conclusions are subjective. More importantly, according to the PCAST report, empirical, peer-reviewed studies of firearm comparison analysis is currently lacking. At present, the PCAST report found there is only a single study that was appropriately designed to test foundational validity and estimate reliability, because there has been only a single appropriately designed study, the current evidence falls short of the scientific criteria for foundational validity. Now, it's not that firearm comparisons are worthless, and indeed, the report states that early studies indicate that examiners can, under some circumstances, associate ammunition with the gun from which it was fired. But what it is saying is that this is not a science. This is not a rigorous field of analysis with peer review and empirical validity that's been evaluated and understood by science. So now let's turn to the testing that was done in the Joy Watkins case. When Stanley Sutton signed his affidavit in support of his application for a search warrant in September 2000, he noted that, quote, there is only a limited amount of forensic evidence such as fingerprints, ballistics, and other trace evidence. Now, we're not entirely sure what he was talking about because there was no fingerprint evidence and no other trace evidence we're aware of, but there was at least ballistic evidence in this case and two different rounds of ballistics testing performed. A bullet, like the type fired from a handgun or a rifle, has three parts. A shell casing, which holds the bullet in gunpowder, the lead core of the bullet, and a metal jacket that surrounds the lead core. Parts of all three types of components were taken into evidence in this case. During the autopsy, the medical examiner was able to recover fragments of a lead core. It had fragmented into many pieces, although only four of these pieces were actually taken into evidence. What the medical examiner did not find was any trace of a metal jacket. Now you might recall that a tiny fragment of a bullet jacket was recovered from the floorboard of Isaac's truck the day after he was shot. This was the second type of ballistic evidence that was found in this case. And then there was a third type of ballistics evidence, the shell casing that was found. Now again, you might recall that a 9mm Federal brand cartridge case was found on Highway 27 about 900 feet south from where Isaac's truck wrecked. What we don't know, as you might remember, is where this was exactly in reference to where Isaac's truck first left the road, where it crossed the median of the divided highway before veering into the southbound lane. Now, ultimately, the state's goal with regards to these three pieces of ballistics evidence was clear. First, have an expert prove that the bullet core, the bullet jacket, and the cartridge case all came from the same bullet, 
and therefore the bullet that Isaac was shot with, which was not identifiable from the core and jacket fragment alone, was in fact a 9mm bullet, which would help prove their theory that Joey or Mark shot Isaac with a 9mm gun. The Rome Police Department submitted this evidence to the GBI. And on the submission form, in the section where the police wrote down what analysis they were requesting, Detective Moser wrote the following. Compare to bullet fragment recovered from victim. Associate they are of each other. And compare fragment bullet recovered from victim to associate togetherness of casing. Yeah, a double-blind study this is not. The instructions are clear on what Detective Moser wanted the lab to find. Proof that the fragment, lead core, and shell casing were all associated with the same event. Jay Jarvis, the lab manager at the Northwest Regional Crime Laboratory in Somerville, Georgia, just north of Rome, was asked to make these determinations. With regard to the first of these goals, you'd have to say that the state was pretty successful, because here's the relevant exchange between District Attorney Tammy Colston and Jay Jarvis at trial. Question. And so it was a federal ammunition cartridge case. Now, the lead bullet core and the fragment of the bullet jacket, was there anything consistent with these two items, that with the cartridge case? Answer, yes, the metal jacket fragment on the inside surface, which would be the surface that's actually in contact with the lead core, had a series of small ribs which are consistent with federal 9mm ammunition. Question. All right. So the core taken from the victim at autopsy, as well as the fragment of the bullet jacket, were consistent with the same 9mm federal ammunition that you got from the cartridge case that was received from somewhere else. Answer. That's correct. Yes. So that seems pretty compelling, right? If you heard this testimony as a juror, you'd probably conclude that the bullet core fragments, the fragment of the bullet jacket, and the cartridge case all came from the same bullet, a 9mm, which would match the state's theory that the shooting was done with a 9mm handgun. And indeed, the reports that were issued by Jarvis in this case match that language that he used at trial. Yeah, and Jarvis's test results actually went beyond this association that Moser requested, At trial, Jarvis testified that in the first round of testing, he was requested to examine the casing, jacket fragment, and core to determine what had been used to fire them. Now, did you take these items and did you perform any examinations with them? Yes, I was asked to examine the items to see if I could determine uh, what type of weapon may have fired them. How did you go about doing that? Uh, By microscopic and visual examination, both of the cartridge case and the bullet. Uh, looking at various characteristics that are placed on these items uh, at the time that they're fired. I couldn't actually find any documentation, though, that states that Jarvis was ever requested to determine what type of firearm was used. Maybe that was implied in Moser's request that he associate the three types of evidence that were found. But at any rate, Jarvis's report ultimately concludes microscopic examinations of the cartridge case reveals it was consistent with being fired in a Ruger 9mm. He found that the jacket fragment was also consistent with the Ruger 9mm. Here's Jarvis testifying at Mark's trial about this, although it's worth noting that the language he used was much less conclusive than the testimony he gave at Joey's trial. Were you able to determine whether or not it was consistent with any particular brand of weapon that may have fired them? Uh, it, the fragment, I mean. Not not conclusively, no, sir. The, there was only just a very small part of the rifling marks that were still... Uh, visible on that fragment, and the dimension of that uh, particular characteristic was consistent with a uh, a Ruger firearm. This conclusion baffled me for a long time, because why? What about the casing and fragment made Jarvis think they'd been fired from a Ruger? Nothing in his report explains it, 
and his testimony doesn't either. So what led to this conclusion? They say there's only three things that are certain in this life, death, taxes, and the fact that going to the post office takes up valuable time. Well, they might not say that third one, but doesn't make it any less true. It's also true that leasing a postage meter can be expensive and come with multi-year contracts and hidden fees. Fortunately for you, dear undisclosed listener, we have a better way, and that better way is Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official postage for any letter or package right from your desk using your own computer and printer, and even get special postage discounts that you cannot find at the post office. Oh wait, it gets better. Stamps.com is even more powerful than a postage meter. At just a fraction of the cost, check this, you can save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. And you'll save invaluable time by not going to the post office. Literally, your time is invaluable. So let me tell you how to save that money and save that time right now. Go to stamps.com and use the promo code UNDISCLOSED. You're going to get a special offer, which will include a four-week trial of stamps.com and a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type undisclosed. That's stamps.com. Enter undisclosed. We had the chance to talk to Jarvis twice, actually. The first interview was back in April this year. Jarvis was with the GBI for over 30 years, and although he specializes in ballistics evidence, he also regularly worked on cases involving just about any kind of forensic comparison analysis that you can think of. When Claire and I spoke to Jarvis in April, I found him to be thoughtful and careful in how he explained the forensic evidence in this case. And I was very much surprised by what seemed to me to be his frank self-awareness tinged with a certain level of regret about how the GBI's approach to forensics had in some ways been aimed at advocacy rather than science. Take his conclusion from his analysis that the cartridge casing was DTW Ruger 9mm, or determined type weapon, it was fired from a Ruger. I asked him why exactly did he think it was a Ruger anyway, and Jarvis acknowledged, well, that was one of the pistols that could have fired it, with emphasis on one of. Plenty of other pistols could have also fired it too. Just understand, you know, and it, you know, now that I'm an independent, you know, consultant, when I write a report, I can kind of write it the way I want to. And, you know, when I was working for the GBI, I mean, you were, you had a defined set of rules that you had to follow when you were reporting things. And, uh, I, you know, I wish, you know, we did more in our reporting, but, you know, you have to understand, again, I, was, I talked earlier about how you know, the whole process has evolved due to accreditation, and, you know, part of that is uh, we've had to change a lot of the things we do because it's not really consistent with, you know, the best practice of laboratories all across the country, uh, you know. 
this statement here, it says reveals that it's, is consistent with being fired in a Ruger nine millimeter pistol. Well, that's that's true, but there should you know there should have been a disclaimer that says you know this doesn't mean that you know it couldn't have been fired from another type of pistol. But see, you know our rules of reporting back then said this was the way it was reported. But why a Ruger? Well, it seems he had to write something, and the more specific, the better. If that, if that is not the only thing that it would have been consistent with, why would you have picked Ruger as being the one that you wrote down? Because the, again, the mindset where we were, the way we did things back in, in that time frame was we tried to provide reports that were more useful to the law enforcement But in this case, that overly and unjustifiably specific determination could have easily had the effect of diverting law enforcement investigation in the wrong direction. Because it seems like the Rome Police Department, for some reason, took Jarvis's findings as a more specific conclusion than it really was. On March 8th, Moser issued a bolo, a be on the lookout for, which affirmatively identified the weapon used to kill Isaac as a Ruger, and only a Ruger. So, quoting from that bolo, at 7.30 p.m., a 20-year-old white male was driving a 1994 Toyota pickup truck into Rome, Georgia, during which time someone fired a 9mm Ruger handgun into the rear of the truck, striking the victim and killing him. And that's the problem. With no reason to think a Ruger was more likely to be the kind of weapon used as opposed to any other consistent weapon, that unwarranted specificity may have led to the premature rejection of possible leads. You know, I also noticed too, Colin, that in this bolo... Moser made no mention of a little blue Honda as part of the be on lookout for. He only identifies the victim's truck. Yeah, and that's interesting given, you know, we all know the history of them trying to tie some type of vehicle that matches that general description to Joey and really coming up short. So that might partially explain why it's not there in the bolo. Jarvis didn't have to speak with us, but he did generously agree to offer his time to talk to us about what he remembered and to explain the gaps in the paperwork and our knowledge of GBI procedure. But we wanted to also have an independent expert review the materials as well, so we spoke to Chris Robinson of Chris Robinson Forensics. Chris is now a private forensic consultant, but he spent 10 years with the GBI as a ballistics examiner, and like Jarvis, he's familiar with GBI's institutional leanings. I mean, this is what I do. I get everything on a case now. So I know from soup to nuts, I know everything that everybody knows. So that's what is not fair. When you think you hire the GBI and they're supposed to be unbiased, it's not. It is biased because they're working it from the state's perspective. And then we take Jarvis's other conclusions, that the lead core, the jacket fragment, and the casing were all fired from the same 9mm as part of the same shooting incident. But it turns out Jarvis only affirmatively identified one of those items. That's the 9mm casing. That, he could reasonably conclude, was fired by a 9mm, and it was federal brand ammunition... But of course, that was written right on the casing itself, so that's not too surprising. But the lead core and the jacket fragment, there's no way to identify either of those as coming from a 9mm. Jarvis's conclusion was that he could not exclude either of those as coming from a 9mm, and therefore it makes sense to assume that they were directly connected to the 9mm casing found along the highway. 
Uh, well, j just looking at this worksheet, if it's a lead core, there's no, uh, because it's the inner part of the bullet, and it, then it doesn't actually make contact with the inside of the barrel, there's no rifling marks that are impressed onto the core. So, you know, the, the problem with a lead core is that there's no way to uh, compare it back to a specific firearm because there's no, uh, there are no markings on it. And that's, you know, unfortunate. And uh, there was also a small metal jacket fragment uh, and it has, you know, it just uh, didn't have enough markings in order to do a comparison, even if, I don't, I'm not even sure that there was a gun recovered. This would be consistent with what Jarvis wrote in his own report on the evidence when he concluded the ballistics evidence had potential for identification of quote-unquote poor. When you write um, potential for identification, you wrote poor. What does that mean, and how do you make that kind of determination in a typical case? You know, when I'm, when I'm doing a, an examination of a fired bullet component, I'm looking for striations or scratches that are uh, engraved on the surface of it when it passes down the barrel. So, uh, obviously, the more stria that's present, the better your chances to make an identification back to a specific firearm or to another projectile that may have been fired during the same incident. So, if there are very few stria available on the evidence, then the opportunities to make an identification is not as good. So I would, I think by putting poor as a potential for identification, uh, that indicates to me that there's probably very little there for comparison purposes. One thing Jarvis's report does note is that the jacket fragment, although only a tiny sliver of the whole thing, had some kind of ribbing on it. This ribbing, he said, is only found in federal brand ammunition. Jarvis didn't do anything to document these ribs, though, beyond noting that they existed, and we have no idea how many there were or how confident he was in this conclusion based upon such a tiny sliver. But assuming the ribs were there, Chris Robinson agreed, the jacket fragment was manufactured by Federal. Federal makes multiple brands, though, but depending on what he saw. So I'll give him the credit that he can, that he can do that. Mm -hmm. If he says he saw it, then I, I would... I would believe that. He just says it's consistent, but doesn't say why, which yeah. leaves, leaves the question, sure. is it just because it's not, it, it could be consistent with a lot of things, so. Yeah, but I mean, to an examiner, when I say it's consistent with, that means I'm saying there's things that I'm saying that indicate to me that it's a federal, and I'm telling you that that jacket is a federal, and the cartridge case is a federal, so I'm telling you, mm -hmm. thus, you can assume that they're the same. And you can never match a jacket back to a cartridge case. So if you ask me, do you know for sure? No, no, I don't, because I don't have a gun. But if you ask me my expert opinion, I'm telling you, they're the same manufacturer at the same shooting. You can extrapolate that. In other words, one plus one equals two. But it's not as if Federal Ammo is some magical unicorn among bullets. And the idea that two different people might both fire Federal brand ammo is not inconceivable. I don't have any particular reason to think that the casing and jacket are not from the same projectile. But at the same time, I'm not comfortable with that being used in court to support the affirmative conclusion that they are the same. I mean, if I find two paintings on the sidewalk, they might both be manufactured by the U.S. Mint. But does that mean I can conclude they both fell out of the same pocket?
So due to these unrecorded attributes concerning the jacket fragment, it does seem like it was made by Federal. There's nothing though that was found to identify the jacket or the core as being nine millimeter in particular. And Jarvis's conclusion that they were was 100% dependent on the assumption that they were connected to the casing that was also found. But why do we assume the casing was connected to Isaac's murder? It's a Georgia highway, and finding a shell casing isn't exactly a shocking turn of events. In order to shore up this hole in this case, the prosecution argued that the brass casing was just too darn shiny, that it had only landed there a couple days before it was found, which means it was almost certainly connected to Isaac's murder. Now, have you, in your career as a firearms expert, have you had occasion to notice the, the oxidation of brass when it's exposed to weather? Uh, yes, generally the longer uh, a brass cartridge case is exposed to the elements, the more it will oxidize. What happens when it oxidizes? What, what are we talking about? It's a reaction of, of the, the metal itself with the air, and it's usually accelerated by moisture, and it causes uh, typically what you would steal, uh, what you would see like with iron or steel, it's, it, it rusts, but in the, in, when you're dealing with copper, it's, uh, it doesn't really get that rust uh, brownish color. It just... Uh, turns a little, it loses a lot of its shine or polish. Does it over a period of time turn green? That... Uh, it, it can if you if it's exposed long enough, it can turn green, yes. Would a case such as that oxidize fairly quickly if left exposed to what? Uh, I would say so, yes. Now, studies exhibit number 24, the casing that you received, did it have any evidence of oxidation? Uh, no, sir, it didn't. So, left out, exposed on the side of a highway in the weather, if it had been there for more than a few days, would you expect for it to be oxidized? Uh, I probably would, yes. Can you narrow it down as to how long you would expect it, given that there are variables about rain and so forth? Uh, no, I can just base it on experience that I've had in uh, test firing firearms at the laboratory outdoors uh, you know occasionally you'll shoot something out in our little range area and you may go out in the next you know three or four days and if there's a cartridge case still laying there usually you can tell that it's uh, it shows signs of oxidation so I mean I, I haven't done any like definitive tests as to how long it would take for you to notice any type of a change but uh, typically you know after four or five days you, you would expect to see some sort of a visible difference so we know that that bullet had only casing had only been out there minimum four or five days. Uh, it, it's it's my opinion that it was out there just a, a short period of time. Yes. But as Jarvis acknowledged, this isn't science. It's just a guesstimate he was throwing out there on the basis of something he'd maybe noticed once. So why is the defense jumping to its feet and objecting all over the place? Because I just don't think Jarvis's estimate is right. Oh, look, this bullet has been here for one week now. I put it down on Monday afternoon last week. It's now Monday evening. It has rained literally every single day in Georgia because this Christmas is apparently monsoon season. Um, and it's been sitting out here in the rain on the side of my driveway. And it's still just as bright and shiny as it was when we started because apparently brass doesn't rust. Who knew? Now, 
Now, I brought that casing home with me when I flew back to DC, with the intention of leaving the case out for another month or so to see if any corrosion would be present. And the last time I saw that casing, it was still shiny and non-corroded looking. Then Snowzilla hit DC and snow melted away and the casing was gone. No clue where it got to, but that was kind of the end of my science career. Anyway, it's not as if my methods were more scientific than Jarvis's, because they weren't. But that's the point. This isn't evidence that should have been used to send a man to life in prison. And while Chris Robinson's comments about the condition of the casings aren't science either, they do show that Jarvis's musings about the casings wouldn't have been shared by all firearms experts. Do cartridge casings, how fast do they corrode? This depends on the type of conditions that they're left in. Uh, I, I saw where he said that. Yeah, I could stick a cartridge case over here. I've had a cartridge case sitting around over here. Those cartridge cases sitting on that windowsill over there would sit there for the next hundred years, and that would never change color. One's nickel, one's brass. They're the same as they ever were. So for almost two months, I have been sleeping on what must be the most comfortable mattress I've ever enjoyed. The good folks at Casper Mattresses sent me a king-size bed, and folks, it has not disappointed. After comfortably sleeping on it for a bit, I went and did my research on Casper, and what I found shocked me. Not only the fact that Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress, but that it comes at a shockingly fair price. I also discovered the reason it's so comfortable is because it combines springy latex and supportive memory foams to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and the right bounce. In fact, Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. It's an award-winning mattress that just won't disappoint you. There's also great news for our listeners in the US and Canada. If you order a Casper mattress, you're gonna get free shipping. Casper is made in America and they're proud to offer a 100-night risk-free trial in your own home. If you don't love it, they're gonna pick it up and refund you everything. Undisclosed is proud to offer our listeners a special offer. You're gonna get $50 off towards the purchase of any mattress by visiting www.casper.com undisclosed and using the promo code undisclosed. Terms and conditions apply. That's www.casper.com undisclosed, promo code undisclosed. Yeah, so really all of the above that we've just discussed displays the heart of the problem, and it's a problem that's been identified with everything from microscopic hair comparison to bite mark analysis. It was identified by this President's Council report. When there's a lack of independence of experts, it can lead to false positives or testimony that gives the impression of a match when no match can be established. Now, part of the problem in this case is that we also don't know exactly what was communicated between the Rome Police Department and Jarvis. And here's an exchange between Claire and Jarvis on this very subject. Would you have had any kind of oral history as well as the, these documents? Like, would you have had any conversations with the detectives? Uh, possibly. Uh, typically, in this time frame, that usually did not occur. Uh, 
again, if, if you'll let me digress a little bit, you know, in, in the evolution process of how we did things at the crime lab, you know, it changed from in the early years when somebody brought evidence in, they called somebody from the section up to the front office and you went up there and you met people face to face and you might actually discuss the case and stuff like that. But as, as we evolved and to try to become quote unquote more efficient, uh, we had uh, laboratories where we had people that their main job was just to receive evidence into the laboratory from the agencies and people, if you were a scientist, you, you weren't interrupted in the middle of doing something and come up to the front office necessarily to meet with somebody unless it was, you know, they really felt like there was something that they needed to talk to you with. Uh, in some types of cases, they were even able to drop evidence off into a locker, you know, just put a it in box? a locker, or a drop box, <laughs> and, and close it. Here. Yeah. So I, you know, you you did you lost contact a lot of times with getting, you know, talking with the investigators unless during the course of your working a case you felt like you needed to talk to somebody. But uh, in this instance, you know, I probably just, you know, went with whatever information was they furnished on the, the submission form. So as a result, all we have to go by in this case is the evidence submission form, which says, on January 11th, 1999, Isaac Dawkins was shot while driving his truck into Rome. A bullet fragment was recovered during the course of the autopsy. A jacketed part of a bullet was recovered in the cab of a truck, and a 9mm spent shell casing was recovered near the accident scene. It is this investigator's request that the evidence submitted be analyzed to determine if the evidence submitted can be associated with the bullet recovered from the person of Isaac Dawkins. Isaac Dawkins was shot from the rear as the bullet entered from outside the backslash rear sliding glass window of the truck, and then the bullet struck Isaac Dawkins. So we had this form, and this was the form that Moser filled out and submitted with the two pieces of the bullet, the fragment and the casing, that went up to the lab in Somerville. But... It can't be the only communication between the Rome police and the ballistics lab, because if you look at the report, the one issued on March 15th, so a little under a month after this evidence and these request forms were sent up to Jarvis, Jarvis's report has a section not just for victim Isaac Dawkins, but also suspect Joey Watkins. How did Jarvis learn that? It's not in any of Rome's forms. So someone's talking back and forth, if Jarvis knows that. Yeah, so given this incomplete and seemingly unreliable information about the ballistics, the nature of the gunshot, the gunshot wound, etc., we decided to follow up with one of our reliable expert sources from season one, and that's Dr. Lee Lavati. And so here's the interview that I conducted with Dr. Lavati regarding the ballistics and forensics evidence in the case. Today, we welcome back a terrific guest from our first season, Dr. Lee Lavati. Dr. Lavati is an assistant professor of pathology at the University of Michigan and deputy chief medical examiner at the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office in Detroit. Dr. Lavati, welcome back to the podcast. 
Well, thank you for having me back and for sharing another exciting case with me. Now, I'm going to start by describing what I sent to Dr. Lavati. First, we have the victim's autopsy report and medical file. Second, we have the results of tests done on the victim. Third, we have various photographs taken of the victim in the crime scene. And fourth, we have images from a CT scan that was done on the victim. And after that, I gave Dr. Lavati a brief description of the case. And here's that description. The victim, Isaac Dawkins, was driving his pickup truck when it veered off the road and crashed into a pine thicket. There was no attempt to brake or steer, and witnesses wondered if he'd perhaps fallen asleep at the wheel. Medics in the scene could tell that there was some serious head trauma, and he was transported to the hospital at 7.43 p.m., and according to various sources, at 9.10 p.m., it was determined the injuries were not from the motor vehicle accident, but instead were the result of a gunshot wound to the head. Now, Dr. Lavadi, what were the conclusions that you drew from this evidence and the description I gave you? Well, based on the autopsy report, the one photograph of the right side of his head that appears to have been taken in the hospital, and the three photographs of the fragment of lead core recovered from his head at autopsy, I summarize his wound as this. There was an atypical entrance gunshot wound on the right side of his head above the ear with pseudostippling injuries described primarily on the right side of the head, the right ear, and the right side of the face. I say described because I did not receive any pictures of the pseudostippling injuries. Now, pseudostippling indicates that he was shot through an intermediary target, that the bullet struck and either passed through or deflected off of something prior to striking him on the right side of the head. When a bullet strikes an object and either deflects off of it or passes through it, the bullet becomes deformed and the core can become separated from the jacket if the bullet was jacketed. And this projectile is now knocked off of its ideal in-air path or trajectory. When this destabilized and deformed bullet strikes the skin, the resulting entrance wound will be atypical, meaning it will not be normal or typical appearing, which is a punched out hole that has an abraded rim. Now, pseudostippling itself are superficial, small, irregularly sized and irregularly spaced injuries that can be either abrasions, lacerations, and or contusions. They're named for their ability to resemble true gunpowder stippling in a close-range gunshot wound, and it can be present when a bullet strikes or passes through an intermediary object. Pseudostippling can be on the skin surrounding atypical entrance wounds or on any nearby body part and are caused by fragments of either the bullet, fragments of jacket and or lead core if the two became separated, or even fragments of the intermediary object itself striking the skin. Now, after the bullet entered above the right ear, it passed through the skull and the brain, specifically the right parietal bone, right parietal lobe, left parietal lobe, and left parietal bone, and it caused extensive related internal injuries, um, again, specifically subarachnoid and subdural hemorrhages, brain contusions, common nuded fractures of the skull, and brain swelling. And then finally, four fragments of a lead core from a jacketed bullet were recovered from the wound tract. Now, is there any possibility in this case that the victim, Isaac Dawkins, remained conscious after receiving this gunshot wound? Well, given the extensive internal head injuries associated with this gunshot wound, he was most likely rendered unconscious immediately or within a few seconds at most. And is there anything that you can tell us about the type of weapon that might have been used to commit this murder? Portions of a lead core from a jacketed bullet were recovered from the head, so the weapon was either a handgun or a rifle. The nature of the internal injuries favor a handgun, as rifles tend to cause more destruction within their wound tracks due to their increased power. 
for instance, with rifles, you would expect to see complete pulpification of the affected lobes of brain instead of a one inch in diameter wound tract, as was described in this case. And does it seem unusual to you that no jacketed portion of the bullet was recovered from the victim either during his autopsy or that the jacketed portion wasn't visible in the CT scans? Uh, no. In a shot fired through an intermediary target, the jacket may separate from its lead core prior to striking the body. Uh, so in those cases, uh, only the lead core is what enters the body, and it is the only part that will be recovered. And would that jacketed portion of the bullet be something that would be picked up by the scans or an autopsy if, in fact, that jacketed portion were in the victim? Yes, the jacket and the lead core both appear the same on CT scans and on x-rays. So if portions of the jacket were in the body, they could be as easily identifiable as the lead core, and they could be recovered. Now, in this case, the victim had two circular wounds on his head, and one was directly above the other. The gunshot wound was on the top, and the autopsy says the lower wound might have been caused by a circular antenna. Is it possible in this case the lower wound was caused by the jacket of a bullet which had separated from the core? Well, all I have is the description of the circular wound and the one photograph uh, with it that was taken in the hospital. Uh, and it does appear to, uh, that something round and tubular struck the head below the entrance wound. Uh, since I don't have a picture of the antenna or any additional photos of this wound, I would say it's possible that a jacket caused that wound, just as it's possible that a portion of the jacket could have created any of the pseudo-stippling that was described on the body. Yeah, and what I'll add to that is that there was this tiny sliver of a jacket that was found in the truck, but most of that was never recovered, and that's why I'd be sort of wonder in this case if the jacket might have separated from the core prior to impacting the victim. After reviewing the materials that I was given in this case, I would agree that it is most likely that the jacket did separate from the lead core upon impact with the car window and that only the lead core struck him in the head. Now, in total, there were four pieces of lead core that were recovered at the autopsy. One was a large piece, one was a medium but long piece, and then there were two much smaller pieces. But the CT scan seems to show that there were a lot more than four pieces, so my question to you is, is it common for some bullet pieces to not be recovered during an autopsy? Well, all pieces of bullet that can be recovered generally are, but the size of the piece is a rate-limiting factor. Uh, if the pieces are too small, they can escape detection by palpation. And in general, we can't use forceps or other metal instruments to retrieve bullet or bullet fragments because of the risk of interfering with the striations on them. The striations are the marks left on the bullet from traveling down the barrel of a weapon, and that's what the firearms examiners use to determine if bullets were fired from a particular weapon. In cases with fragmentation of the bullet uh, or its lead core, uh, such as this case, there usually are minute fragments of bullet that could not be recovered from the wound tract. But a word about CT scans. Uh, these kinds of wounds uh, in the head produce a lot of bone fragments in and along the wound tract. And in CT scans, both bone and bullet appear dense or white. Uh, so what you are seeing on his CT scan as the white spots are actually multiple fragments of bone mixed with bullet and aren't just bullet fragments. Also, the apparent size of those fragments don't correlate to their actual size. So what appears to be large enough to be recovered on the CT scan is in reality not that large at all. And in this case, after reviewing everything, are there any conclusions or informed guesses that you can make about three things? One, the trajectory of the bullet just prior to impacting the victim's skull. 
two, the trajectory of the bullet as it entered the truck, or three, the speed of the bullet as it struck the victim? Well, the fact that the bullet passed through an intermediary object makes all of these questions difficult, if not impossible, to answer. Whatever trajectory this bullet was on changed as soon as it passed through the intermediary object. Now, some say that the bullet starts to tumble after passing through such objects, but experience in the literature says that this is not always the, the case. But what we do know and can answer to is that the bullet struck the head and traveled from right to left, slightly forward and slightly upward while it was within the head. And whatever speed bullet was traveling prior to striking the window was faster than the speed it was traveling when it struck his head. And in this case, the caliber of the bullet couldn't be identified from the pieces of the bullet that were recovered from the victim, but there was a 9 millimeter casing that was discovered about 550 feet south on the roadway, and a law enforcement officer concluded that a 9 millimeter was used to commit the shooting. Do you find that to be consistent with the victim's injuries here? Well, the injuries are consistent with being inflicted by a handgun, so yes, it's possible a 9mm could have fired that shot. Um, but as a forensic pathologist, my expertise is the injuries created by the guns and not the guns or the bullets themselves. Uh, with regards to the bullets, we are basically just technicians retrieving them from the bodies so that the ballistics and firearms examiners can examine them. And so it would be that type of examiner that would best be able to answer your question regarding the fragments and the recovered casing. Now, with that being said, there are a couple things that we do know. We do know that four pieces of lead were recovered from the head at autopsy. Uh, the jacket, which would have had the marks or striations that could have linked this bullet to a particular weapon, uh, were not recovered, so that information's lost. And the core was fragmented, and not all of it was recovered, and thus it was not available to be reconstructed. Uh, so the information regarding caliber is also lost. And then there are things like 38 caliber, a 357 caliber, and a 9mm caliber all have jacketed rounds and all have a similar, although not identical, diameter. So this is a very complicated science with a lot of moving parts. Um, so I would definitely ask the ballistics and firearms examiner about how the casing links to the core fragments in this particular case. Yeah, and you just mentioned the diameter, and in this case, the wound track had a one-inch diameter, and could that indicate the bullet was tumbling at the point of impact here? Well, the bullet was not tumbling per se, uh, but it had deflected from its initial trajectory once inside the vehicle, and then even more so once inside the head. And it was a deformed projectile because it struck something else. So you would expect a wound path that would be wider than the width of an intact bullet. Now, the one-inch measurement is an approximation, and it can be a bit deceiving. In this case, it is a measurement of the wound tract, which, again, in this case, includes destroyed brain, bone fragments, core fragments, hemorrhage, and swelling of the surrounding tissue. So it is clearly more expansive than just the width of a bullet itself. And you mentioned earlier the pseudo-stippling, and there was this pseudo-stippling that was found on the right side of the victim's face. Are you able to tell how far away from the broken glass one has to be before pseudo-stippling does not occur? Well, there's no set distance for these types of determinations. Um, as long as the small fragments can reach the skin, they can injure the skin. Um, but it's not unusual to see pseudo-stippling from rear car windows on gunshot wound victims that were seated in the front seat of a vehicle or vice versa. Now, earlier I mentioned a bit about the timing here. The, the CT scans in the case have a timestamp of 8.16 p.m. 
and those scans seemingly show a brain that has bullets in it. But the earliest time that anyone reported the victim's injuries were actually caused by a gunshot wound and not a motor vehicle accident was 9.07 p.m. Is there anything that you can tell about why it might have taken about 50 minutes in this case after the scan before anyone identified it as a shooting case? Well, as a forensic pathologist, I cannot directly answer those questions. Uh, an, e an ER doctor can best answer how a gunshot wound can be initially missed. And a radiologist can be the one to best answer how CT scans are read and reported and reasons for apparent delays. Um, I can say, though, that in my ex experiences, uh, even here in, in Detroit, with a consistently high homicide rate and several level one trauma centers, we do rarely get cases where the immediate circumstances of a motor vehicle accident overshadows the initial scene investigation. Uh, and so a gunshot wound may be initially missed by investigators. Uh, cases where once in the ER trauma has been missed or misdiagnosed as to type, uh, for instance, a laceration from a blunt force wound uh, mistakenly interpreted as a stab wound, and even cases where CT scans are not read or reported in what would seem to be a timely fashion. Um, so again, these things do happen, but the other specialists can best address the hows and the whys. And finally, we've gotten a lot of questions about a photograph we've shown to our listeners. It's We think of the inside of the driver's side door, and it appears to show something along the lines of a red tube or blue streak, and it was taken at the crime scene, but there's no records concerning what it depicts. Is there anything that you were able to tell from looking at this image? Uh, no, I couldn't determine anything from looking at that image. Well, Dr. Lavati, thanks so much. Our listeners and we really appreciate your expertise and for taking the time out of your busy schedule to look through these records and help us out with some of this very interesting and complicating medical and ballistics evidence in the case. You're welcome. Okay, Undisclosed listeners, we've been talking about it for weeks, but the new crime drama coming to ABC debuts tonight. It's called Conviction. You gotta check it out. It looks at the American justice system in a very unique way. What makes the show different is that while most crime stories end behind bars, that's exactly where Conviction begins. Week to week, you're gonna follow a Conviction Integrity Unit whose purpose is to investigate possible wrongful convictions. The team doesn't put people in prison. Rather, their job is to help get out the wrongfully convicted. What I found cool about this drama is that the team only has five days per case to investigate. In that five days, they recommend that a conviction be overturned or let stand. It's only five days to uncover the truth, and it creates a tremendous sense of drama that really moves the show forward. The show stars Haley Atwell of Marvel's Agent Carter as the leader of the unit. She plays the former president's daughter, Hayes Morrison. She's a brilliant legal mind, but she's got her own troubles with the law, and that makes her perfectly suited for this job of providing second chances for the potentially wrongfully convicted. You're also going to see Emily Kinney of The Wall 
Walking Dead and Eddie Cahill from CSI New York. ABC was cool enough to let us watch the first episode and we were enthralled. I'm looking forward to watching the season as it progresses. I know there's going to be plenty of twists and turns ahead in this fast-paced crime procedural that's based on stories torn from today's headlines. Hey, and you know what? It's not all roses. The CIU won't always overturn a conviction. They might even free somebody who's guilty, but they're always going to work together to reveal the truth. You're going to have to stay tuned till the very end of every episode to see if justice will be served. So make sure you check it out. Conviction starts tonight at 10 Eastern, 9 Central, right after Dancing with the Stars. Don't miss it, only on ABC. Now, all of the testing we discussed in the first part of the episode was done on March 1st, 2000. But then, 10 months after Isaac's death in November 2000, a second round of forensic testing was requested. This time, the testing had a different goal. Established that the bullet that killed Isaac was not shot from a gun owned by Heath Wilson. Now, as you might recall, Heath Wilson was the guy in the older model blue Honda involved in the other highway shooting on January 11th, 2000 on the west side of Rome on Highway 20. He was arrested four days later for that shooting after an officer saw him firing a gun behind his girlfriend's house. Although initially Heath and his girlfriend pretended that a 380 had been the gun that Heath was firing, his girlfriend quickly folded under questioning when the officer pointed out that the 380 had not been fired recently. So she went back in and brought out a different gun. This one, a 9mm, recently fired. Which is kind of an awkward fact if you're trying to convict someone else of committing another highway shooting that was done that night with a 9mm. But there are a lot of 9mm in the world. And all they had to do was prove that it wasn't this particular 9mm that had been the one used on Highway 27. Conveniently enough, on November 20th, one week after Joey and Mark were arrested for Isaac's murder, the GBI lab issued a report concluding that Heath's 9mm had not been used to shoot Isaac. Here's what Jarvis testified to. I was asked to test fire Heath's 9mm and compare it with the cartridge case that had been submitted on the Dawkins homicide. I compared the, primarily the cartridge case was obviously in the best condition, and I compared that with the test cartridge cases that I fired in the Keltec pistol. And then later, we have Jarvis testifying and giving the answer that the cartridge case taken from the scene where Mr. Dawkins was shot was not fired from the Keltec pistol. Two weird things about this testimony, though. The first is that no one ever asked Jay Jarvis or the GBI to make a comparison between Heath's 9mm and the 9mm casing. The only other request for testing in this case, following the March request to associate the fragment and jacket and casing, came from Sutton on November 2nd. Because a few days earlier, before that, Isaac's mother had found a bullet in her backyard. So she gave it to Sutton, and Sutton gave it to Jarvis for testing. And I can only guess that Sutton was hoping this bullet would somehow be connected to the death of Isaac's dog, and then would match the bullet recovered from the crime scene. But that's just me guessing, because this test was never disclosed to the defense, and all we know of Sutton's intentions for it comes from the form he submitted to the GBI, which requested that Jarvis analyze the bullet from the Dawkins yard and, quote, compare projectile to projectile from head. Anyway, for some reason, even though the only request made to the GBI was to test the yard bullet, a couple weeks later, Jarvis issued a report that also randomly went ahead and tested Heath's Keltec and found it didn't match the cartridge casing at the crime scene.
Yeah, and this brings us to the second weird thing about Jarvis's findings. Although he recorded numerous ways in which the crime scene casing and fragment and the test-fired bullets from Heath's 9mm were identical, Jarvis concluded that they nevertheless were not a match based on his opinion as an examiner. For instance, the jacket fragment had a groove width of .100, according to Jarvis's reports, while the test bullets fired from Heath's 9mm had a groove width of .100102. And the jacket had six grooves with a right-hand twist, while the test bullets had six grooves with a right-hand twist. Also, on Jarvis's drawing of the test bullet cartridge casing, every little mark he has made to show various impressions left in the metal match the markings he made in his little drawing of the cartridge casing found at the crime scene. Despite these similarities, though, Jarvis's report states the test-fired bullets and the crime scene evidence didn't match due to unspecified differences in their individual and class characteristics. I think I, you know, according to what I've written here, that the, uh, it had different class and individual characteristics, so. Along the edges of the. Land impression with. So, Which would be the groove of the bullet. So what that means is that the metal jacket fragment, you compared the metal jacket fragment to the Celtic 9mm. Uh, apparently so, yes. And it had similar groove impression width to the gun, <laughs> but different class and individual characteristics along the, along the edges of the land, land impression width or the groove of the bullet. But the problem is that the year 2000 was still very much the stone age for the GBI in terms of documentation. Jarvis's rough, hand-drawn sketches were all the recording that he has ever made. Here's Claire asking him about what he would have done different if he were examining the case now. And what would that documentation have possibly shown you that's not documented here? I think I would have been a little bit more specific as to what the class and individual characteristics that were different. Maybe even taking a picture, I don't know. Yeah. I asked Chris Robinson about this when I spoke to him also back in April, and he confirmed what Jarvis would tell us, that this pattern of recording measurements that all match between two pieces of evidence, but recording that the evidence was not a match due to unrecorded and unspecified attributes that didn't match, was utterly normal. But I understand what you're saying on the bullet, mm -hmm. but he... He must have been competent. You're looking at individual characteristics that the way the gun marks these bullets, and if he saw enough that where he was able to determine that it couldn't have been from that Celtic, is what he's saying. So let's break that down into the looking just at the jacket fragment. Okay. So you're saying that it, in terms of just that metric alone, you would consider a point. 100 and a .100102 to be a match? It's the same mm -hmm. rifling structure and the same width of the groove. Okay, so... That's GIW's groove impression. So he's saying it's within the scope, yes ma'am. And when you look at it under 15 to 20 times magnification, you can tell if, the, if it's even close. The individual characteristics, how it makes those defects in the groove impressions and on the land impressions, he may have, he must have seen something. He also noted that there were a lot of weapons that could have left a bullet with stick screws and right hand twists 
or it can match a 0.100 GIW measurement, which is a measurement of the groove left by the rifling in the barrel. Chris said that there was no way he could evaluate Jarvis's work based on these reports, but even though there's no way to know why Jarvis had concluded what he had, Chris could only assume that Jarvis had gotten it right. To a ballistics expert, he said, it would have been plain as day. And I have to be honest, a Ruger is a Mona Lisa. A Caltech looks like my nine-year-old daughter painted it. That's what it's going to look like. Under the scope, it's going to be just like that. Caltechs are ugly. I mean, they're gross in the fact that the breech face is so rough that you'll, you, you'll, you, just have, you can match it, but it's not even close compared to a Ruger versus a Celtic. I, I know where you're going with that, and I would love for that to be the case, and I understand from a lay person's perspective, what you're saying to me is the pictures look the same. Their locations, yeah. everything looks great. I, I understand that. And again, we take pictures of all these today. Mm -hmm. The GBI does. I don't, but the GBI does. It's just frustrating that he records information that's the same between the both and then doesn't record the information that's not the same between the two. That's true. That's true. I agree with that. I agree with that part. But again, and again, that's that's from... For me, I know what he's talking about. And again, that's why we look at everything. We look at who is the examiner on the case is the first thing I ask him about. Because then my doubts come up when I realize certain people are working cases and I'm thinking, ooh, if you told me Kelly worked it, I would say, you're done. Because I trust Kelly, because he was the last, he trained me. He's the best. Anyway, the fact that the stuff that's all the same would be recorded and the stuff that actually made the bullets not a match would just be summarized as not the same, that's kind of a thing they do on purpose. Because the lack of documentation really bothers me. That we don't know, because right now, that's, from my understanding, that's all we know, is that there's different unspecified individual characteristics, even though the, the measurements match. We do it that way on purpose because we want it short and sweet. When you run off at the mouth and start typing up reports that go on for pages, you just pin yourself into a hole. I'm telling you, it doesn't match. And then if you start asking me questions like you're asking me right now, then I'll explain it to you in court. But I understand where you're coming from, from the lay person or from someone who doesn't deal with the firearms field, yet you would want more. But as long as he can explain it to you. In other words, it turns out that the field of ballistics evidence is a field that was carefully calculated to drive me totally bonkers. This is Claire and I on our way back from our interview with Chris Robinson, discussing our shared frustration. I mean, he was he was claiming that in the case of Ruger in particular, it's so easy. And so he didn't need more information to be able to draw the same conclusions, right? But I do. Yeah. Sure, that's how it's usually done in their trade, and they trust other examiners to know basic differences. But when those differences aren't even recorded... Right, but the similarities are... I mean, there is zero chance for a defense attorney to examine this evidence without getting their own expert in there to look at the evidence, which they should. That should be done anyway. But even just based on the records and reports, there should be some ability to evaluate the work done. And he even acknowledged, like, he's like, yeah, sure, all the recorded information's a match, but that's not what matters here. Like, 
My frustrations with the epistemic basis of forensic firearm evidence aside, it is very possible that the 9mm handgun Jarvis tested didn't have anything to do with Isaac's murder. Jarvis did examine these pieces of evidence under a microscope and concluded that various scratches on them didn't line up. And hopefully at some point, Chris Robinson will be able to also evaluate the evidence and give his independent assessment. But for now, even if I have no way to evaluate whether Jarvis's conclusions were correct, I certainly have no way to find they were not. So I'm willing to tentatively assume that Jarvis got it right. Yeah, but there's also another problem, and that's the fact that regardless of the reliability of the forensic testing that was performed, there's something very important that's missing from the prosecution's claim that Heath's 9mm was not a match for the ballistics evidence found at the crime scene here. And that's proof that the gun J. Jarvis tested was actually the gun that was collected from Heath Wilson. This takes us to the legal process of chain of custody, and chain of custody is the process by which a party accounts for every hand that has handled the evidence in a case. And establishing this chain of custody is critical because it's how a party establishes that the evidence presented at trial is the same evidence seized as well as being in the substantially the same condition as when it was seized. Because that's the problem. If it's not the same evidence, of course, it's irrelevant. And if it's not in substantially the same condition, it can render any testing or conclusions regarding appearance dangerous and misleading. In this case, however, the chain of custody is often non-existent. It's not just Heath's 9mm that has a problem. There isn't a single piece of evidence I'm aware of that is documented from the time of its collection to the time of Joey's trial. For everything, there are gaps in the record that require guessing to fill in. Let's start with a 9mm shell casing, the one collected from the northbound shoulder of Highway 27 South. We know that Lee Carter, the accident reconstructionist, is the one who actually found it the day after Isaac wrecked. Moser came to the scene where he photographed it and collected it at 3.12pm according to the inventory sheet that he filled out. But there's no documentary record of what happened to that shell casing for the next 30 days after that. Our only clue comes from Moser's testimony at Mark Free's trial. Did you take that casing into custody? Yes. All right, what'd you do with it? I turned it uh, into evidence uh, time later, which was, at the time, Sergeant LeVon Ward was the evidence custodian for the Rome Police Department. All right. Did you, uh, how do you handle evidence like that? Well, you label um, the container or you label the package. Um, you seal the package, and, of course, you um, put evidence label on the package indicating when you received it, when you recovered it, whom you received it from, a chain of custody, if you will, uh, from, from when you first found the item. All right. And did you do that with this casing? Yes. And did you put your name on there? Yes. Did you label what it was? Yes. Now, you held on to that for a while, did you not? Yes. For what reason? Well, I didn't know. Uh, I secured it in a a uh, lockbox I have, I only have a key to it, but I didn't know if any time during the investigation I would come upon um, the weapon that I believe could have been involved and I've had immediate access to both items uh, to take the crime lab for analysis. Um, but I did not recover that item and then turned it in to Sergeant Ward. All right. But at some point after that, you did? Yes. It seems a little bit weird that a detective would have a personal evidence lockbox, I guess, but maybe that's just how they did things normally. 
What is really weird, though, is Detective Moser's claim that he was keeping it in his personal lockbox so that he'd have immediate access to it for testing if and when he came across the weapon he believed to be involved in the shooting. I mean, aside from the fact that I can't see why Moser would have lacked immediate access to evidence if it was held in RPD's evidence locker, Moser also didn't send it in for testing when he did come across a weapon that might have been involved. Because on January 14th, the police did recover a 9mm used in a highway shooting on the day Isaac was shot, and the police thought may have been connected to Isaac's death. That's the gun that Heath Wilson was firing in his girlfriend's backyard just before his arrest on the Friday after the murder, and that he initially denied having, until his girlfriend brought it out to the officer. And in fact, according to the arresting officer's report, Heath then declared, quote, that if something had happened with that weapon, it did not belong to him, it belonged to a friend at work. But Moser didn't send this 9mm casing recovered from the scene in to be compared against Heath's gun. He just held it for a month and then gave it to the Rome Police Department's evidence custodian, Lavone Ward. But here's where it gets weird. According to Moser, he properly sealed the 9mm casing and kept it in his personal lockbox for 30 days until he handed it to RPD's evidence custodian. But at Mark Free's trial, Fred Simpson, the prosecutor, called that custodian Ward to testify. And Ward testified immediately after Moser at Mark's trial, which should have made the contrast between the two testimonies more startling. This is Ward testifying on direct. Yes, sir. It is identified as the spent 9mm shell casing uh, that I received from uh, Detective Moser on uh, February the 11th of the year 2000. For what reason did you receive that? Uh, for uh, safekeeping and then uh, to transport uh, it to State Crime Lab. When you receive items such as this, are they, do they come to you sealed or did you seal them? Uh, this one came to me in the plastic bag, but it had not been sealed. I placed the uh, the evidence tape here on it. Uh, State Crime Lab requires it be sealed before we transport it. So before you transport it, do you see it? Yes, sir. What the heck? Officer Ward remembers this evidence came to him unsealed. And same goes for the jacketed portion of the bullet. Now remember, this is from Mark's trial, not Joey's, and Prosecutor Fred Simpson's doing the questioning. Tammy Colston was appointed as a Floyd County judge immediately after Joey's conviction, which is why she wasn't available to be a prosecutor at Mark's trial. And at Joey's trial, none of this came out. Colston didn't call any witnesses to speak to the chain of custody, and she certainly never asked Moser if he'd sealed the evidence he collected and handed it over sealed to the evidence custodian. Moser only testified that I placed them into evidence, and then eventually, of course, it was requested for exam through the GBI, and it was sent there, yes. But given this gap and this failure to match between the testimony of Warren and testimony of Moser, it makes sense that Colston simply avoided the whole chain of custody question at Joey's trial. And it almost seems like Fred Simpson blundered into it by accident, not knowing that his chain of custody witness was going to contradict the RPD investigator on whether evidence was sealed or not. Because I have no idea what's going on here, and for all I know, this is just bureaucratic sloppiness. Having officers keep evidence in private lockboxes before turning that evidence over a month later, unsealed, to the actual evidence custodian. But like, why even have a chain of custody if you're going to ignore it like that? 
The whole point of a chain of custody is that you can avoid dealing with questions like, why would a police officer keep ballistics evidence in a personal lockbox and not document this fact anywhere? And who unsealed the ballistics evidence before it was given to Devin's custodian? And what was the purpose in doing so? Moser is an experienced cop, and in general, from what I've seen of the files and investigation, he seems like a thorough and diligent detective. And yet he's saying when he collected the evidence, he put it under seal and was keeping a close hold on it so he'd be able to test if the gun he believed was used in the shooting came to light. And he's keeping it in this personal lockbox that no one else can access. And then two days after that casing was recovered, They've got a guy arrested for shooting another truck on the same night Isaac was shot. And when that guy's arrested, he was arrested with a 9mm. And it's pretty clear from the testimony given at Heath Wilson's trial that Moser was well aware of this fact. Here's FCPD officer Sergeant Dallas Battles describing how, even from day one of the case, Floyd County and Rome Police Departments were working together. You were also concurrently assigned on the joint investigation Yeah, in fact, Moser even threatened that Heath's 9mm would be tested for ballistics evidence. On January 20th, Moser had a recorded interview with Heath's girlfriend, Tracy Dunn, who was 16 at the time. And Tracy swore up and down that Heath had gotten a 9mm on the same day he was arrested, prompting Moser to tell Tracy, quote, We've got some ballistics tests to run on this gun and some other follow-up that we just don't have the results yet. So we wonder if she better be telling the truth about Heath not acquiring the gun until after Isaac's murder. So what's the next step in the investigation? If this case was a choose-your-own-adventure book, I'm pretty sure that 99% of people would flip to the page for run ballistics tests on Heath's gun. But the Rome and Floyd County Police Departments chose a different option. They flipped the page for hold on to gun for 10 months and keep no records whatsoever about where the gun was or who has it for that whole time period. Yeah, because from a chain of custody standpoint, Heath Wilson's gun disappears the moment he is arrested. The other gun that Officer Adams confiscated when Heath was arrested, the 380, did vanish that day. There's not another documented record of it in existence, as far as we can tell. But the 9mm does reappear again in November, when Jarvis does a comparison to the crime scene ballistics. But where the gun was from January 14th, when Heath was arrested, up until November 2nd, when the GBI's chain of custody shows it being delivered to Jay Jarvis by Officer Boyd, for no apparent reason, with no documentation whatsoever recording the transfer, that's a complete black hole. Now, at Heath Wilson's trial, the arresting officer, Officer Adams, did testify that after he arrested Heath, he gave the gun to Sergeant Battles with the FCPD. But that's the last we hear of it. No inventory sheet was made for it. No one wrote down what model gun it was. No one wrote down where it was being stored. No one wrote down how or if it was being sealed or secured. The only reason we even think we know its serial number is that on January 20th, Floyd County investigator Jerry Boyd sent a request to the ATF for a trace on the gun that, according to the request form that Officer Boyd filled out, had been collected from Heath Wilson on January 14th. The ATF trace came back showing the gun belonged to some guy named Wallace Lee Hansen, but 
They never seem to have attempted to talk to Mr. Hansen about this gun or why it may have been in Heath's possession in the first place. Anyway, this is all bizarre to me. When I first went through the chain of custody records and saw, or more especially when I listened to Mark Freese's trial and heard Moser confirm that the casing and the jacket fragment didn't have a chain of custody to speak of, that shocked me. But when I saw the the firearm record and realized that they had Heath's gun basically missing for a year with no one even bothering to write down where it was stored, I was blown away because that's not normal. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's standard operating procedure to have chain of custody. And when there's any type of dispute about the evidence, you have the prosecution coming in and saying, here's our chain of custody. And when there are issues, certainly of this gravity, you would see defense counsel strenuously objecting and saying this evidence is inadmissible. So... Yeah, as an evidence professor, it's just shocking to see the lack of information. You just say it's sort of this black hole where we have no idea where the gun was, what might have been done to it, if there could have been an error, something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, actually, this is uh, it's a hypothetical I use in my class where it is it is a ballistics case and they're trying to match casings to the gun. And it is where the chain of custody is lacking. And that's what I communicate to my students to say, was this gun functional? Could it have misfired, you know, matching the gun to the bullet? And yeah, I mean, that's exactly the case here. Yes, let's recap now. Heath's gun was missing in action at the same time Moser was announcing he's going to run ballistics tests on Heath's gun and was holding the 9mm casing from the crime scene in a private lockbox, which he testified was because he wanted to have it available for immediate testing if and when a gun was located. Then, three weeks later, according to the evidence officer, Moser gave up on finding any gun connected to Isaac's murder, so he turned the casing and jacket fragment over to RPD's evidence officer, Ward. But when Ward collected the casing, it wasn't under seal, nor was the jacket fragment. Ward had to be the one to seal them himself. But it probably doesn't matter, right? I mean, it's not like there could ever be a secret forensics case number that the GBI would use to store the results of forensic analysis that were favorable to Joey, but store it in a way that was unconnected to the rest of the Isaac Dawkins case and therefore be unavailable to the fence. Because that's crazy talk, yeah? Of course it is. Anyway, so maybe there's a reasonable explanation for all these problems with the chain of custody. But since Detective Moser won't talk to us, we can't ask him. There is one thing I'd really like to know, though. Detective Moser's investigation notes show that he actually did do some kind of further investigation into Heath's gun, although we don't know what he looked at or who he talked to. But Moser found something, which led to him writing in his notes in the Dawkins case, quote, Heath got gun Wednesday, not Friday. Which is a direct contradiction of what Heath testified to at his trial in 2002. Did you go to Walmart on the 14th? Would that have been the Friday? Friday. Yes, sir, I did. Okay. And why did you go to Walmart? I had just got a gun that day from a friend at work. And I was why like, did you get a gun? I was going to go target practicing with my stepdad. And why were you going to go target practice? I just wanted to shoot it. I just wanted to shoot a gun. In fact, even as Heath was being arrested, he made this claim to the officer. So the officer puts in, does he tell you you're under the arrest, under arrest for aggravated assault? I know, sir. Okay. Uh, did he tell you anything about uh, a, a 
about what was supposed to be done with a gun. Um, he told me, he said, you better hope they didn't do what you say you did with that gun. And I told him I just got the gun that day, so I couldn't have done nothing with it. You borrowed it from a co-worker or something like that, I think? Yes, sir. Okay. What happened with the gun? Is that the gun that went into custody and went off for forensic examinations and all that kind of stuff? Yes, sir. That is the gun. But according to Moser's investigation, Heath actually had gotten that gun on Wednesday. Granted, Wednesday is still after Tuesday, which is the day Isaac was shot, but somehow Moser got tipped off that Heath hadn't gotten the gun on Friday like Heath and his girlfriend had both claimed. So, Detective Moser, if you're listening in, we'd really love to know where you learned that Heath had been lying about how and when he acquired that 9mm handgun. Given the weakness of the state's forensics and ballistics evidence against Joy Watkins, where did that leave the state? Well, as in the Adnan Sayed case, it left them hoping someone would come forward to incriminate the defendant in the murder of the victim. And, as in Adnan's case, they had some assistance. A financial reward. But the reward in the Joy Watkins case made the 30 pieces of silver offered in Adnan's case seem like 30 pieces of copper. That said, the identity of the person who might have claimed the reward and how they might have used it are no less interesting next time on Undisclosed. wraps up the 12th episode of Undisclosed Second Season. Listeners, if you could, do us a favor. There's a great podcast called The Vocal Minority Report. It's hosted lots of excellent guests, but most notably as it pertains to the Undisclosed family, Vocal Minority Report has recently featured Rabia Chaudhry and the host of Military Justice, James Wyrick. The Vocal Minority Report has interviewed a lot of other interesting people as well. It's fun. We enjoy it. We think you should go give it a listen. But for now, let's roll into the credits. Big thanks, as always, to the Georgia Innocence Project. They brought us Joey's case. Send him some love. You can do so at www.georgiainnocenceproject.org. Every buck you send their way is dedicated to helping to exonerate the potentially wrongfully convicted. They operate on a shoestring budget, so every dollar matters. Our great sponsors this week, longtime friend of the show, Stamps.com, stepped up for us. Thanks, Stamps. Our most comfortable sponsor, Casper. Man, Casper, thank you for that mattress. It's done wonders for my back. And the debuting ABC drama, Conviction. Folks, it starts tonight, 10 Eastern, 9 Central. Go watch it. You're going to love it. The folks that make this show sound great, Rebecca Lavoie of Partners in Crime Media and the great podcasts. Crime Writers On, and these are their stories. Hannah McCarthy helps out Rebecca with additional production assistance from Brooke Giddings of the podcast, Actual Innocence. The producer of all producers, Methel Tellhand, puts this show together. Methel, I left you out of the credits last week. I'm real sorry. Please don't be angry with me. If I've got to go another week without getting an email from you, I think this whole thing's going to fall apart. Ramiro Marquez and Patrick Cortez did our wonderful theme music. 
Nina Mooser and Christy Williams on the website. At that website, you'll find people maps designed this week by Baluki, who also did our logo. Thanks, Baluki. We're on the social medias at our handle, Undisclosed Pod. You're going to see us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Hey, and guess what? If you didn't already know, but you probably already did know, I'm going to say it anyway. You can ask our host, John Cryer, of the Undisclosed Addendum a question about this week's Undisclosed Podcast. All you got to do is tweet at Mr. Cryer with the hashtag UDAddendum. Tweet him a question, and maybe, just maybe, he'll read it on air. The executive producer of Undisclosed is Dennis Robinson, and he looks forward to seeing you next week for episode 13. Until then, 